0: In this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast, I am joined by Mary Jo Sharp, professor of apologetics and author of the book Why I Still Believe, to discuss the ways in which both churches and Christians' hypocrisy and neglect of essential characteristics of God end up misrepresenting who he is. This week's conversation is inspired by the topics and themes of my book, A Jumble of Crumpled Papers. If you enjoyed today's conversation and haven't read the book, the link to pick it up is in the description below. If you're a first-time listener, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to our intro episode, episode zero. Hero, to get brought up to speed on what this podcast is all about. But without further ado, enjoy the episode. Hello everybody and welcome back to the Crumpled Papers podcast. My name is Austin Knoll, and on today's episode I'm joined by a very special guest. A friend who I came into contact with in a really interesting way. My mom was in the hospital, and one of the hospital staff, or I don't know if he's a nurse or a doctor, I forget exactly what role he is, but One of the people working there, helping my mom, started talking to me about my book and my podcast, and he said, you know what? I know someone, my mother-in-law, who wrote a book and does stuff like that. You should talk to her, and I bought your book right away, and I found you on social media, and a couple months later, here we are, because I needed to talk to you and have you on the podcast. So Mary Jo Sharp is my guest today, who wears a lot of hats, and I'll give her a chance to say her spiel of what she does and who she is, (laughs) but... The reason why she's on today is that she is the author of the book, Why I Still Believe. The subtitle is A Former Atheist Reckoning with the Bad Reputation Christians Give a Good God. And we'll get into all that. But first of all, Mary Jo Sharp, thanks for being on the show. How are you?
1: (laughs) Hi, thanks for having me. I'm good.
0: That was a big intro.
1: (laughs) It was. It was. I'm tired already. (laughs)
0: I know, this is it. That was the episode, was guys. Thank you for listening.
1: No, it's the it's the most interesting like connection that I've had. I know. <laughs> so I love it. I love that.
0: Yeah, it was meant to be. It was meant to be the guy working. I'm like, okay, cool. Love the connection. Yeah. So, Mary Jo, let me I'll ask you this first question because it lets you give a general kind of background to who you are. But would you mind giving us a general overview of yourself and your background, particularly in regards to your church and faith journey and all the hats you wear and what you do?
1: Yeah, well, it a lot. So, you know, 30 minutes later, here we go. Oh, yeah, here we go. <laughs> so, yeah, that's a good question because I do have a very Southern sounding name, Mary Jo. And so there's a lot yeah. of assumptions that come with that. But I actually grew up in a very non or let's say my area that I grew up in was has low religious participation. Uh, okay. So there's just not as much cultural Christianity running around in the like the Portland, Oregon area, which is where I grew up. Yeah, and I also grew up without church, so I wasn't raised uh, in the church. So my background is atheist, but it's more of um, not being educated or acculturated into belief mm-hmm. in God. It was more of what uh, I assumed everybody was like. Like the religion sure. was not for regular folks like me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was for sort of the fringe of society. And so I didn't really, from my childhood point of view, I didn't really understand religion, what it's for, what belief in God was. And I don't know where I got that idea from or this idea from, but it's that people who were religious needed it and I did not. Uh, and mm. so, that, so that's kind of like where I'm coming from was, uh, was that, but also because, mm. so I didn't have church or religion or that community or culture in my life but what did I have was TV and the movies. And so my view of mm. Christianity is like the exorcist and you know, things like that. Great
0: image. Great image for that.
1: Yeah. And some of these old, you know, if they weren't like crazy fantasy wild, then it was more um, horror like that. But or then it was yeah. more um, just sentimentality, like the bishop's mm. wife or, you know, it's a wonderful life. Stuff like Got that. Got it. So not very good. You know, that's kind of where I'm coming from. And so what I saw of Christianity was wildly, you know, subjective. And the other thing I saw was sentimentality. And then further, I saw things like uh, evangelical scandals on TV, like the Jim Mm. and Tammy Faye Baker scandal. And Mm -hmm. so I was very distrustful from (laughs) the start about this endeavor. And it makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So that's like, that's where I'm coming from. So what I do now, so you get the background, like it's sort of atheist. I was a musician. I was a band nerd. I play saxophone and several other instruments uh, because I got a degree in music education. So I know them all and play them all badly. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, But now I'm a professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University. And I've been there for 12 years. And I started, uh, I helped start a degree program in apologetics, which is like really life shift from where I grew up and my plans for life, which were to go into music, become a symphony orchestra conductor. And that was, you know, going to be the highlight. And now I'm a professor teaching theology, apologetics, Mm -hmm. philosophy. I have a public speaking platform. Um, I've done a couple of debates, uh, public debates with Muslims, one with the atheists, mm. and I've written books on the field of apologetics and on how really on how to have better conversation with people who don't believe like you do.
0: Hmm. Okay. I love that you started with that and then came to this because now we can fill in all the blanks. It's two completely opposite sides of the spectrum. and It's so intriguing. <laughs> <laughs> um, Okay. So, I mean, with that, let's go in right into this. I want you, I would love to talk about, if you could share a bit about your journey from being an atheist growing up to becoming a believer, what was, you kind of already explained your reasoning for being an atheist. So how did you become a Christian? Why did you become a Christian? And what was that process? Once again, a long question, but (laughs) what was that process like?
1: Yeah. So my uh, family, they, though they didn't go to church, my chemical engineer dad, who was all things science, just exposed mm-hmm. me to so much about the universe in which we live. Like as far as cosmology, biology, like we used to watch all these old nature shows and then anything Carl Sagan put out, like we were on it <laughs> or, or Leonard Nimoy, like in search of Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> Spock. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's a big fan of Carl Sagan and all those shows about, um, outer space. Like he used to wake me up in the middle of the night to watch meteor showers and stuff.
2: So
0: oh, that's cool.
1: Yeah. He's, he's really excited about, um, outer space in general. And, uh, he also took us camping all over the Pacific Northwest, mm. which is incredibly beautiful. So he taught me this love of nature and, uh, just, I, I started to see that there was great beauty in the world that there was, mm. I, I lived through the. Eruption of Mount St. Helens. So not only was there great beauty, there was great power Mm -hmm. in the in the world in which we lived. And then couple that with my parents' love of all things music and plays, uh, they took me to a lot of Shakespearean plays. So Mm. it's really hard to go to a Shakespearean play without encountering like what is the meaning of life?
0: (laughs) That's the point. Yeah, I know.
1: So You know, I started to see like Carl Sagan's telling me that I live on the pale blue dot, like this tiny little planet in this vast universe. And then, you know, Shakespeare is talking about these ultimate meaning to life. And so it's my Doctor Who reference is that he's making me feel like I'm bigger on the inside, like there's something more going on here. And I need to figure out what's going on. Uh, Why do I feel drawn to things that are beyond me and bigger than me? And um, what is all this? beauty that we're creating for what is this music for Mm. I was a band kid in a very good high school band program so we're playing incredible works of art and I'm just going wow this is so emotional for me this is drawing something Mm. very raw out of me but what is it for like do I just live and die did that thing felt good in the moment. And that's all the meaning that there really was unless I construct something about it. Um, And so I was like, there's gotta be something deeper than that. And I'm looking for what is the, what's the meaning of life, my life. And right, right at that time, like when I'm old enough to actually kind of ponder this and form these kind of questions, my high school band director, who is so influential for me because I actually have a degree in music education okay, and I taught public school band, (laughs) which was a blast, but he felt really burdened for me. He was a Christian who hadn't shared his faith publicly like this Mm. with, you know, student in particular. Uh, And he was very worried that he might lose his job for doing that, but he just could not Mm. shake this feeling. I got to say something to her. And when I was a senior in high school, he gives me a Bible as a gift, like going away present. Yeah. Along with his baton. Like it was a really important gift because that baton was what he used at the state band competition that we won.
0: He's passing the baton in two senses.
1: Oh, oh my gosh. You're a punter. <laughs> like my husband's a punter. There we go.
0: I had to say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> That's awesome.
1: So yeah, he, he gave me this Bible and he said, when you go off to college, you're going to have hard questions and I hope you'll turn to this. And he just like hit me at the right time. So there's... There's this moment in my life where I'm like, okay, I have these questions. Let me check this out because I really respect him. And when I went off to college, I actually did start to explore faith. And eventually I found a church where I heard a gospel presentation that made sense to me. Like all this searching Mm I had done, this was the like the logical answer. And I trusted Jesus for my salvation while I was in college.
0: Wow. Okay. So we're here to talk today about your book, Why I Still Believe. And the book itself delves into. Really, you're reconciling between, okay, it's, of course, your journey from being atheist to being Christian, and that exposing of that whole different mindset and culture and ideas for you. Mm -hmm. So coming from atheist to Christian, and then in that Christian space, having to reconcile the promises of Christianity and what holds you there out of atheism Mm -hmm. or from atheism, but yet the hypocrisy you then confront and the the bad image in a lot of cases that the churches and the people you were exposed to were, were were presenting you with in the Christian space under the Christian guise. So my question to you is what were the biggest examples of this hypocrisy or these confrontations from your own experiences in church?
1: Yeah, I think that's, is tough because in the book I go into some of the details, um, specific examples, but I'm going to like sort of pull it back up to more of a yeah. meta narrative because one of the things that really drew me to God through the biblical text was the great love that I saw in this great under, like uh, community that was idealized in the Bible about how yeah. Christians are supposed to treat one another, how we're supposed to be slow to anger and really looking out for each other. And just there's all these passages that I was just sort of loading up into my mental backpack. Yeah. like oh, that's why people go to church. This is that community mm-hmm. uh, that the way we treat one another will demonstrate to the world that Jesus is God's son. You know, it's like John 17, Jesus yeah. is praying this in the garden. I'm like, so this is that community. And when I got into the church, so I'm going to, I'm going to pull it up to kind of a meta view of the yeah. My biggest examples is that Christians professed these biblical passages Uh, And some of them could quote scripture, like they were so proud of themselves because they could quote whole books of the Bible to you. But when it came to ethically living in accordance with those teachings, they failed so much. And Hmm. to me, it seemed like they were failing in ways that were kind of, I'm going to risk saying this, easy fixes. (laughs) Like, no, yeah, it's true. Don't gossip. Done, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Done. right. Don't gossip about people behind their. Go to the person, and you know I found that a lot of my many to most of my experiences with fellow Christians really didn't reflect like a concerted effort to enact the teachings of Christ uh, in their Mm -hmm. behavior of how they're supposed to treat one another to develop this amazingly loving, caring community. And I think what I saw, which came out like a few years back was this moral therapeutic deism which was if you don't do certain things like you don't go to rated r movies you don't listen to you know you don't cuss you don't listen to bad music or whatever that you'll be a good christian and yeah but those same people that held to these things were some of the most mean-spirited gossips i had Mm. ever encountered (laughs) and i was like wait interesting what What's happening here? So, not only was that a problem for me, I'll side note this. I think that a lack of concerted effort on behalf of individual members in the church and the overall discipleship of the church to address this issue uh, intentionally has really turned away younger generations um, due to the hypocrisy and inauthenticity of the individual believers because they profess this stuff, but then it's the hard work. Of living it out in daily moments. Right. So that that was one of the big like meta views is I I started thinking to myself, wait a minute, my atheist friends actually enacted some of these teachings hmm. better than than the people that that professed them. It, yeah, and interesting. I, I was really uh, that really threw me. Um, it threw me and I said, hey, wait a minute. Uh is people really believe this? And I couldn't, I couldn't see. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm a naive idealist. I will admit that <laughs> I come into the church with all these high ideals, but I didn't have any training yeah. in this. I didn't have any training in the sinner saint problem yeah. or in human nature. And, and so I expected to find at least some local examples, not having to point to Billy Graham or Mother Teresa or like these big, huge examples, but like in the yeah. local body, I believe it's and you'll hear me say this a lot. My issue comes back a lot to my experiences in the local church community. Uh, So I'm not like labeling all of Christendom, but that was a problem. I would say another meta view was that I encountered, because we were in ministry, my husband was a pastor of various sorts throughout almost 30 years. And the structure of the church leadership and its business functioning, I could see that it was based in a non-Christian pragmatism that did not consider the question Mm. of, is this ethical in accordance with Christian teachings? So it was daily workings in the church and the structure. Mm. Uh, I'll give you an example. We dealt with yeah. a really, I'm going to keep, I'm going to protect people as much as I can, but we sure. we dealt oh, with yeah. a really tough situation between church staff members and You know, you could as you're reading your Bible, you can kind of see how this is supposed to unfold. You're supposed to go to one another. If that doesn't work, you're supposed to bring in another party. Blah blah blah. Then there's basic U.S. business law, you know, how you're supposed to treat people in the workplace. I didn't see Mm -hmm. the church even adhere to basic secular business ethics of how employees should be treated, Mm -hmm. let alone adhering to higher the higher standards and Christian principles. In fact, in the many churches we've been in. I didn't see a regular concerted effort towards adhering to those higher Christian principles. Uh, in fact, I saw a lot of reverting to just regular secular mm. business practices or worse. So that yeah. really threw me uh, being in ministry was like, wait, aren't we supposed to be setting the ethical standard in our practices?
0: Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, one thought I had going back to, to, to you mentioned younger people, because a lot of young people listen to this podcast, just, Naturally, because I'm younger. We do it's such a big thing you hit on of the reason why a lot of young people are turned off to it is because they hear this stuff preached, but we have the younger the generations are going, I think the way we're brought up with so much media and so much advertising in our faces and tons of behind the scenes before you'd see a TV show with these actors and never see them ever yeah. anywhere else but we, we see so much advertising and commercial and media that we have built-in authenticity radars, right? So when we hear stuff and don't see it being lived out practically, we're, we just say, oh, it's yeah. a sham, okay, because it's so common, mm-hmm. right? And the church has such an opportunity not to be that, that when it is, it's a real bummer because it misses a lot of marks where it could bring a lot of young people in and, and offer them things that they're not being able to be exposed to.
1: Yeah. you know, And some of them aren't super hard. So I know I talked about church leadership and that goes back to structures and accountability and all that. But no. then like the gossip thing or the way that you respond to an individual who may be upset with you. I mean, there's redemptive ways yeah, to engage right. those people. <laughs> you yes. don't have to go into your vices even more because of learned mm-hmm. behaviors. And th- there's a whole bunch of psychology that goes with that. Sure. But that's the point. Like Christianity is supposed to be something that helps you on this path towards modeling Christ in your way, for who you are, and I'll probably bring that up later on. but that's I think yeah. that the young younger generations are definitely picking up on that like what you said is, hey, why aren't you why don't I see your struggle to live this out? Where's that humility pill?
3: Mm.
1: Uh, and then one that bothers me a lot is uh, the lack of epistemic humility. so, humility hmm. on what you can know because you can't know it all
0: yes right that's huge <laughs> and i
1: think you're picking up on that and communicating that oh yeah with all this information coming at us when we see people in front of us they're like you listen to me i'm the one that's the authority i know everything about everything and i'm never wrong and mm-hmm. blah 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 and then you're like wait that's not even possible right that's not mm-hmm. even a possibility
0: there's a misconception sometimes or just not looked at enough to intentionally figure out the truth about this is that some people believe that people, especially young people, but all people will gain comfort from someone who can tell them all the answers. And it's true to an extent is you can gain comfort from that because there's safety in being told all the right things for exact fact. But there is for young people, especially there can be such a relief from someone coming to them and saying, Hey, I don't know all the answers, but let's go look on them together. I don't know. Them, but let's go, let's go this direction maybe and seek this out. And, ponder this maybe there's a relief in that because it allows I don't know it gives them a part in actually trying to figure it out themselves yeah. too <laughs> and life isn't all black and white
1: that's a relief for older people as well yeah
0: <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah because
1: you reach a certain age where you think like man I'm supposed to know more but then right. I always take this um this Mandalorian view <laughs> if you don't know I like Star Wars mm-hmm. this Mandalorian view of if you really believe that you're going to perpetuate you will perpetuate into eternity then you're not so much this like, you know, 49, 50-year-old, 80-year-old, whatever. You're really grogu. Yeah. You're like 50, but you look like a yes. child. <laughs> you look like a baby. And that's
2: oh, that's, that's really
1: the perspective that we need to take is that we're human beings. We have a limited time, limited um, ability to know things. so we can't, there's no way we can know everything. And if we believe in the fallen mm. human nature, then we're probably wrong a lot.
0: It's true. I'm not going to name this episode. We are all Baby Yoda. (laughs) There it is. But that's a great metaphor. I I love that. Would you be able to share in your book, you talk about an interaction you had the first day you went to this new church for your first time. Oh, yeah. Would you share that that interaction? Because I thought it was pretty interesting. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's so... Um, The first time that I go to church as a brand new believer, I've just accepted Christ. Uh, And this is like, I've been at college for a little bit. I've met my husband. Um, We got married. We had a baby really young. And so there's a lot going on. (laughs) There's a lot. I'm also halfway across the country away from my, you know, the culture I was raised in and my family. So I Mm. don't really know what to expect, but I'm like super excited that I'm going to belong to this new community of believers, which like we said, I idealized. So, um, the after I accepted Christ at my home, you know, you go to this. This was the kind of church where you go in and you you walk the aisle, is what it's called, and you profess before everybody your commitment. Now, I grew up in a part of the country where religious belief is considered private, so. This is already a huge step for me. It's already way out of my comfort zone. So I'm a poor college student. I have two dresses. I'm fussing over like, what am I supposed to look like? Because all I know is Hollywood. Yeah. And I pick one of my two dresses. We go to church. Uh, my husband this born and raised Southern Baptist from a small town in Oklahoma. He's like, you're fine. You look great. Everything's great. Like He's super happy. And we're going into the sanctuary uh, that first morning as a new believer. Yeah. And the pastor's wife was actually greeting people. Hey, how are you? How are you doing? Like, as you're coming into the sanctuary, you have to pass by her. And we come up to her. She looks me up and down. Her smile drops. And she says, oh, honey, we need to find you better clothes. Oh, Yeah, I'm coming into the church to tell them that I have professed salvation in Jesus Christ to secure my eternal you know, salvation, my destination. And yeah. we're looking at my clothing. Which I'm yeah. like if you look at my outfits over the years, I'm a fairly conservative dresser. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So even for Americans. And so I'm just yeah. Yeah. like not understanding why this was the direction that she went. So from the very first moment I'm walking into the church as a new believer, I'm experiencing judgmentalism. And yeah. that was not what I expected, according to what Paul was, you know, I was reading from the Apostle Paul, who wrote so many great books of the mm-hmm. New Testament. And I'm like, oh, um, you know, there's no condemnation in Christ. And this is this community that's really accepting. And that's my encounter. So I know that's kind of, it seems kind of trivial, but what it does is it sets up the fact that it just didn't stop there. You know, that was just an indicator of where things were going to go and how much I would encounter not only petty instances like that, but also Mm -hmm. really bad ones. And, And as we've all seen, because of social media, there's been a lot more that has been behind closed doors that's come out into the light that's not good.
0: Yeah, it's the first impression was, which is a through line of the entire of your entire thing here is the full picture promises and truths like that God presents to you saying this, this is the way it can be that I want it to be that it can be with me. And then going to a church that says, okay, we're going to be the vessel of bringing that relaying that to you practically. And then this is how we're going to do it. And now, oh, there's this filter now in there that siphons it out. And what comes out the other side is nowhere near that, it doesn't feel like. So at what point is it me? Is it the church? Is it God that caused the warping of that initial picture into what I'm receiving practically?
1: Yeah. Yeah, it's a really great way of saying it.
0: So overall, how did these experiences and your exposure to these, I don't know, warpings, I'll call them (laughs) warpings, I don't know how did these experiences impact your view of christianity church god and yourself
1: sure yeah um and i'm going to take warpings because of being a sci-fi nerd and liking <laughs> star trek
0: oh yes
3: perfect
1: <laughs> uh, how did these experiences impact my view well i began to distrust people way more than what i realized um at the time mm. that it was happening I I don't think I would, I really have been able to express that as a young believer. I wouldn't have expressed, oh, this is causing me distrust. I knew I was uncomfortable. I knew that there was some anger and some confusion as to why people would focus on the things that they did. But now I've got hindsight so I can look back and say, oh, I started, I was seeing patterns of behaviors that were forming this response in me i was seeing patterns of behaviors that said one thing and then did another so it says i believe in the yeah. bible i believe god is the standard of goodness i am morally accountable to him yet i was seeing them live any way they wanted to and even double down right. in their vices you know when confronted with things and
3: mm.
1: uh so i and, and being very unaccepting of people who differed from them and i'm saying them generalities just generalities overall sure. so the, what yeah. I was seeing was patterns of behaviors and this began to form my response which was to distrust people in the church and over the long haul it didn't just cause me to question certain church practices and structures kind of like you were alluding to earlier but it also gave me a kind of community fatigue because we got oh. into ministry very young and we've been there a long time and so mm-hmm. performatory expectations coupled with a lack of meaningful concern for myself and my family became exhausting mm. to me and I was mm. wearied by daily ethical failures at both like micro levels when we talk about pettiness and yeah. chances to be redemptive or forgive and not doing that uh, but also these macro yeah. levels at leadership and, structures and so eventually what happened to me, and it didn't take a whole long time. It like it's in the first decade of belief of, of being part of the community. Uh, yeah. I eventually, that that d- distrust for me eventually crossed over into distrusting the existence of God. And I started questioning, why do I even believe mm. this? It doesn't seem like anybody else really does. Yeah. So why do I? Like, what caused that? The other thing that happened is I began to have some identity issues, and that was because I became really good at being what people expected of me or accepted mm-hmm. about me, yeah. and rather than being the person that God made me to be. And now, so I wasn't authentically myself. Now, I'm going to caveat this because sure. that gets a lot of flack in my community. Hmm. What I'm going to say on this is if you are not becoming Christ like in a sense of becoming who God made you to be individually, as You know, you're a unique creation. There's no other you. Yeah. Then there's an identity and authenticity issue. And what I found over and over in the church is they would just say, well, you need to be more Christ like. Yeah. And I went, what does that mean? Mm. So it seemed like it became more Christianese for people. Yeah. I haven't found a a well formed view. What does it mean to be Christ like? Because I think it's being used locally, not at a theological level mm-hmm. in academia, but locally in a sense of, well, you need to be Christ, like be more Christ mm-hmm. means to be Christ, but that's an impossibility, right? Right. So what I, I have to be me striving to model Christ's thoughts and attitudes and behaviors. So what I found lacking in the church was that
3: mm-hmm. they
1: had orthodoxy, so they would say the right things. But the orthopraxy, sometimes practicing those things, and then the orthopathy, having the right attitudes. Hmm. So their identity was forming to become more like the model of Christ, Hmm. but still the way that God made them to be. And that, that kind of teaching was just void. I never heard any of that in the church. What was happening to me was that I was being formed to be a Southern evangelical Christian woman. Yeah. Not the intellectually rigorous, academic, scientific, uh, musician, wonderer at the universe in which I live that God had made me to be. And that was mm. really tough because I had to keep shoving my intellectual rigor down Yeah, to not uh, offend other people's insecurities in the church. And uh, boy, that... That caused a lot of problems. It caused yeah. me to mask. It caused me to mask yeah. who I am. And let me just say that masking is not on the path towards Christ-likeness.
0: Mm, this theme and topic comes up again and again with the conversations I have on and off the podcast because, oh my gosh, so many thoughts of this. I've talked. Okay, so <laughs> you say, be more Christ-like. Oh, okay, great. I think when someone hears that, I think their inner inclination is, yeah, I want that. I don't, yeah. I'm not against that. Yeah, that sounds great to me. Let's do it. And then how? What does that look like? A lot of churches, a lot meaning not all, not, maybe not the majority, but a lot, too many, right, will then hand you a bullet point list of the outer external things that equate that in this particular church, what it looks like to be Christ-like. And a lot of those, mm-hmm. some I bet are rooted in truth and, and a healthy disposition of it, sure. But others are just... Extraneous, like extraneous things that are. Oh, you show up an hour early to service. You do. You show up to these groups. You do this. You say this. You, and, off. I mean, it's obviously it's not an actual bullet point list. So what will happen is, <laughs> be more Christ-like. How do yeah. I do that? Oh, look around you. The people who were looked at as being Christ-like and follow them. And a lot of them in these situations are just following that list of what they learned. And it's the mask. It's this mask you put on that has all these attributes on it, and. The ones who are authentically being themselves, people will nitpick and say, oh, that's not Christ-like, when really, oh, actually, that's exactly what God's calling them to be and who they are called to be. It may not fit the mold sometimes, yeah. but the mold that we've, that we've created unintentionally leaves out a lot of room for the space, the margin that God allows for us to be because he wants us to go there and be that person.
1: Yeah. Well, and in addition to this, there's, there's sort of a logical problem that I have found in the whole argument, which people get hung up on the words, true self, false self. Sure. And one of the things about figuring out who you really are, is that if we believe the Christian doctrine that we are fallen and in need of a savior, if you're always masking your identity, you (laughs) cannot tap into the person who needs the salvation of Jesus Christ. Yeah, You don't know the sinner because you're always masking. So you don't know who you are. And there's an example of this in the scripture, which is the the rich man who comes to Jesus and Mm. says, good teacher, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus tells him for him exactly what he needs in his identity, right? Who he is.
0: That wouldn't apply to a lot of everybody else at the same time. No, it's just to him. Right. To
1: him, you need to recognize that money is your problem. Right. He didn't say it that way, but he said, That's, go yeah. and sell, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the guy walks away grieved because he doesn't want to do that. And right. see, this is the problem when you mask who you are, when you're not, uh, when the church doesn't want you to be you.
0: <laughs> right.
1: Then what are we doing to the person, the the sinner back there who needs to come out and say, this is who I am. This is why I need Christ. It's getting very convoluted in there.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I'm not a psychologist, yeah. by the way, but I just, I'm exploring this now yeah. for the first time.
0: Mm-hmm. The example you used, the other side is, oh, so Jesus gave him an individual. Oh, money is your problem. Go sell everything you have. And what then happens in some cases, but in a lot of cases, is, oh, be more Christ-like. Oh, what does that mean? Oh, well, it says here, give away everything you have to follow God. <laughs> yeah. It's not a one-size-fits-all for every person. It's an individual, every single person. And I understand why churches can resort to having a one-size-fits-all because it worked for somebody. Mm -hmm. And well-intentioned, they'll go, oh, this worked. And it led them better to Christ. It better, whatever, whatever, whatever. So that must be the answer for everyone. And they're leaving out the individuality of it and how important that is.
1: Yeah, it's it's a pragmatism. Yeah. Which is not modeled by Jesus. Jesus goes to the individual for how he made them to be. And he says, here is your problem. Yeah. Right. That's that's. And that's part of you got to figure out who what your identity in Christ is, because that's how we come to trust him Mm. with the very things that we usually that we're trusting in apart from Christ. And so it's sort of the point is that you got to get back to Who am I in order to see what Christ is saying to you about how to trust him?
0: Love that. I love how the mask doesn't allow us to see the parts that we need Jesus. Because what does a mask do? It covers up the cracks, right? And the cracks Mm -hmm. take pride in the cracks because the cracks are where Jesus can shine most. God can shine most. Let's talk about beauty. You mentioned beauty a little bit. And your book, my favorite chapter in the book was the chapter in which you talk about your reconciling with, the importance of beauty, trying to figure out what you think about beauty when it comes to, once again, the idea God gives us and then how it's practically given to you in a church setting. Yeah. And in many cases, a lot of churches seem to have kind of lost the essence of beauty and the importance of it. Can you share your thoughts on the nature of beauty as well as how and why you think Christian culture and many churches have lost sight of it?
1: Yeah, I, and I... I really love that you brought this chapter up because the more people who read the book, the more they say, oh, chapter nine. They do,
0: okay. (laughs) They do,
1: they're like chapter nine on beauty. Yeah. Um, But yeah, because remember, beauty drew me Mm -hmm. to God. I wanted to find out who this artist was, who this creator. And
0: you're not alone.
1: Yeah, and it actually, beauty speaks to more than just believers. Beauty Mm -hmm. really does speak to the world and draws people. So looking at like the nature of beauty, let's start with that. As a Christian, the nature of beauty goes back to what I believe about the nature of God. Mm -hmm. The scripture teaches that God is good, true, and beautiful. And so I'm going to kind of stick to my evangelical community, but probably some of this can be uh, expanded out into other aspects. I will say in the traditions that Catholics have done generally better. Sure, (laughs) yeah aesthetics overall so Mm -hmm. shout out to my catholic friends (laughs) Uh, but these concepts the good the true and beautiful for evangelicals especially they seem fairly well understood on the first two so -hmm. if you say what is good God is good. That's what the answer would be. God is good. So yeah. what they're saying is His nature entails the standard by which we know what goodness is. True. Okay, yeah. So there's sort of the definition. If we say what is true, there's Pilate's question to Jesus. Yeah. So Jesus testifies that He has come bearing witness to the truth, and that he, that comprises His kingship. He's King of Truth. Mm-hmm. So, in less parable-laden terms, all truth is from God yeah uh, he's the author of truth. He's the creator and, and evangelicals do well with that. but now the question what is beauty? Mm-hmm. Our response should be right that God's nature entails perfect beauty. Mm-hmm. His nature entails the standard by which we know what beauty is. And then his beauty is it this is so important for us to talk about because it also entails both the true and the good. yeah things like moral beauty, which we mm-hmm. see in characters like Galadriel and Lord of the Rings. yeah. Which is, by the way, why she's terrifying. Side note. <laughs> sure, yep. But this is this is such an important topic because I have a, a colleague at HCU, Dr. Phil Talon, who's written on this. And he did his doctoral work, his dissertation on aesthetics. And he writes on the, mor- the sorry, on the argument from beauty. Hmm. And he says, those evangelicals aren't currently relativistic about those first two, goodness and truth.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: We seem to have adopted the secular view That beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Mm -hmm. That's a subjectivity on the third transcendental of God's nature. Yeah. It's a subjectivity. And the other thing that I don't like about this (laughs) is that when you say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, then beauty becomes more utilitarian Mm -hmm. in nature and that it's relegated to how it serves an individual. Yes. And how it does that. Like, it's good because it's serving me well. So it loses its transcendental impact and that it's supposed to point you beyond yourself. So now you've also asked another question about how or why. Why did we like, why are we at this point?
0: How do we get to this point? You're right. Yeah.
1: I'll share so, a little bit of what my colleague has to say, because he's actually researched it. And then sure. my sort of off the top of my head. Yeah. Dr. Talon thinks that we've left it behind as an objectively knowable thing. So beauty mm. has just fully gone into relativistic subjectivity he says most people will find themselves suddenly enraptured in a moment of beauty mm-hmm. which happened to me as a kid in band but then they bail on it uh, on a discussion of it as quickly as they found themselves in it hmm. so um he references where this comes from in an essay called argument from aesthetic experience by mm-hmm. peter kraft and ronald to kelly he says, In this book, 20 Arguments for the Existence of God, though they give the other 19 arguments multi-page treatments, or at least multi-paragraphs, he says the argument from beauty is only three lines long, Hmm. and this is it. There is music from Johann Sebastian Bach, therefore, there must be a God. You either see this one or you
0: don't. <laughs> and that was it.
1: Yeah. In the midst of all the <laughs> major arguments for God's existence, beauty gets, you either that. see it or you don't. And the implicit like assumption he says is that the reader is left with, you, you can't argue this. Mm-hmm. So we've got philosophical influence going on, mm-hmm. but I have another suspicion. Yeah. Yeah. I think part of the the reason we relegate beauty over to um, this relativistic subjectivity and I would say utilitarian mode is partly due to modernization, urbanization, and the effects of the industrial revolution Hmm. um, in which we adapted a lot of utilitarianism and pragmatism. So what that means is we've overbalanced the functioning of things from the value of the thing in itself. Hmm. So we we really value stuff for what it can do and how it functions, but not that there is inherent beauty in the thing itself. One example you can see of this and Roger Scruton is where I got this from is if you look at cities that yeah. were built in like the prior to the industrial revolution you see they're beautiful they're meant to uh, homes are meant to welcome you home and Mm -hmm. you feel good so you look at these old villages and the streets are gorgeous and people go visit europe just to see these towns and the way they're built and they feel they feel the presence of of the aesthetic quality of the beauty of the love and care yeah but if you go to something a town that was built with all these modernistic sky rises that weren't attended to in their aesthetic quality but were for functionality he said these things do not not only do we not you know say wow these are gorgeous they don't endure we tear mm-hmm. them down once they're done functioning because they don't have any purpose after that right right so i think that's one example and then in my book yeah if I haven't gone on too long. Yet. No, this is great. Keep going. <laughs> Whatever.
2: This is great.
1: Uh, in my book, I talk about, uh, because it's very personal to me being a woman, is the pragmatic view of female beauty. Mm-hmm. And I think this has infiltrated the church. So the pragmatic view of female beauty via sexual objectification to serve male gratification
3: mm-hmm. is a mm-hmm. problem.
1: And then it's been exploited for marketing purposes to sell us stuff. Yeah. So instead of seeing female beauty as inherently beautiful in of itself, with a further purpose of pointing us onto the beauty of the Creator himself. yeah. and thus casting our thoughts on the powerful nature of the Creator mm-hmm. and how that can deeply speak to our soul, female beauty has been reduced to how it functions for any given individual in any given moment. Yeah. And I saw this view of female beauty implicitly taught in the church, in my experience. Um, and it's not, they weren't explicit. Nobody's going to say that,
0: right? <laughs> no. Sure. Oh, right. No, no.
1: But when you carefully guard female beauty because it causes lust or it's, you know, you're teaching that therefore it is for a certain mm-hmm. purpose. And that purpose is that sexual gratification. Right. And I, I really... I was like, what has happened here? I'm a human being. And the closest thing to me in the world is the male counterpart, the closest yeah. creation. And we are beautiful creations of God that reflect his image. I am not to be reduced to the utilitarian purpose of anything, really, because I'm a, I'm a beautiful creation of God.
0: And that's huge in so many, I don't know, purity culture is, is a huge thing if for younger people and old people you know millennials and older because it was a 90s thing really but it goes until today but just that thought of what you said if it's being presented as a threat to something that means it was created for the opposite of what you're trying to protect from that right, right. and i've had full conversations about this the mist the damage first off it does to the view the perspective of female beauty or just human beauty in general for the individual and from others as a, a first person and a third person look at, Oh, that beauty is a threat to this needs to be shut down. needs to be put in line for this. It's such a damaging thing. And it's so true. Yeah. And it misses out on, which I'm sure we'll talk about too, is what the purpose of beauty actually is and what that provides the opportunity for. But you also, you also mentioned a bit, cause I, you're, you're a creative arts person. So am I. I'm a filmmaker. My parents are filmmakers. Uh, my, my church, uh, the church I was a part of for 18 years, that I was born into, was a creative arts ministry. That was kind of our thing. We were in Hollywood and it was full of a bunch of people who were film, musical, musicians, artists, whatever. So in your book, you talk about how this affects the perspective of art and creativity, um, mm-hmm. which, which, which my church, I'll give them credit for. Like, we, we got. The importance of beauty in art, because that's what, kind of what we were. So, as artists, we thought that way. It wasn't because of the Christian perspective and the perspective of beauty in God. It was the other way around, where we understood the beauty of art and of itself. So that stayed, but mm-hmm. we didn't go as far as to always understand, "Oh, it's beautiful because it points to this." Yeah. But would you talk a little bit about? I mean, I, I wrote here. I wanted to talk about um, the the dance number you had planned for your church. I so thought that was a huge example of this.
1: <laughs> yeah since i grew up in a very artistic part of the country very you know they pride themselves on their art in portland yeah. and uh so i i had experienced dance as a beautiful expression of the human emotion and soul yeah so i wanted to give that back to the church because i felt that so deeply and I, my husband when he was a worship pastor he used to give me Uh, the position of creative director for whatever we were doing. And sometimes I would just follow a script, but sometimes I would create things to go along with music. And there was this one musical we did where I was so deeply moved by the vision of creation that I wanted to express it in dance. And so what I did was I had these dancers start in sort of a crumpled up position. They're all wrapped up and down near the ground. And Somebody was one of our singers was singing the John one, one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and there was God. And, you know, all things were made by him and without him was not anything made that was made. And it was just really beautiful. And as she's singing, the light is coming up on the stage. It starts really dark and the light's coming up on the stage. And as the light comes up, the dancers unfold. They twirl around and fold to reveal a light. They're bringing light into the world. Yeah pure it's yeah. beautiful it's worshipful
3: mm-hmm. and
1: so we worked we worked this for several weeks and on the night of dress rehearsal which is always right before your first performance the pastor of that church waited for me to be out of earshot of everybody most people left yeah. uh and he says hey mary Jo, we're gonna have to do something about those costumes yeah for my dancers. And I'm thinking, okay, what's going on? Because my dancers are in full leotard and they have two layers of full skirts from waist yeah. to floor on because I'm trying to be conservative. Like I've never seen this growing up, but I'm going to respect yeah, this. Sure. So I was like, what do you mean? I don't understand. And he says, well, they're slutty. Mm. Slutty. Yeah. So he went directly to that utilitarian view of a woman's body as. For sexual gratification, yeah. Not seeing the purity of the worship there, like the—I don't want to over spiritualize, but like the David, King David, ripping off his clothes and dancing before the Lord, like (laughs) unashamedly. Yeah, Yeah. that's not going to fly in our culture, but unless you're hippies, unless you're hippies, (laughs) unless. (laughs) Um, but yeah, the the just that unashamed, beautiful worship was immediately turned into something sexually perverse and I had mm. no under I was I was so like affronted yeah. <laughs> I was like is that the right word or costed? I don't know uh, uh, it was, either yeah yeah it was just not even in my purview that that would be a thought. yeah and so the, the way they fixed it was to put like I said, hey, I'm not going to fix it. We've been doing this for weeks. You've had several chances, and yeah, you know, this is not at this point. It's not my responsibility because um, it was late at night, and we were going to yeah. do this early the next morning. So I said, "You go ahead and fix it, and I'm fine. I'm fine with whatever you do," which I wasn't. But but yeah, generally speaking, what are you going to do here? And mm-hmm. plus, again, remember, I'm a worship pastor's wife. Mm-hmm. What am I going to do to? Because I don't want my husband to lose his job, so I'm just right. like, "Hey, whatever. You go ahead and fix it." And uh, they just dressed them in baggy shirts. <laughs> that was the solution. Just baggy shirts. We just don't even want uh. to see you as a female. So,
0: And that's a huge thing is when, I mean, in this case, specifically beauty, female beauty, but this can go for a lot of different things. When something is, is founded and given that label of the utilitarian purpose and meaning, right, then mm-hmm. it will always be viewed that way, right? And whatever the dynamic is, it'll always be viewed against, oh, that's what it is. So yeah. there was no, they were already, it was already such a stringent thing that you, you, if the, if the, if the line is here for on the wavering line of being something not appropriate for this, you were so yeah. many steps in front of that. But because it was by default viewed as this utilitarian, for this utilitarian purpose, then those three steps are just three steps covering up what that is. And it's not enough. Yeah. It has to be more it until was, it's not it present. never. Right, never be enough. It can't be present.
1: Yeah, and my my other problem was by this time I had started studying other cultures and religions, mm. and I had seen in other cultures and religions that their solution to the lust issue of men yeah. was to drape women fully head to toe to where you can't even see anything but their eyes. Yeah. So I would Yeah, I'm not going to go into any more detail, but it was. Yeah. I I said, why is this in the Christian church? yeah it's not Christian. And
0: it's a great example of it. It's not right. It's not Christian. yeah, why is the preservation and appreciation of beauty so important?
1: Yeah, I really like this question because the the reason it is is because the the Bible addresses God as a, a his beauty as an objective reality. Mm. I mean, we could just like put a pin in it. We're done.
0: <laughs> yeah, like that is what it is,
1: yeah. It, God's beauty is being set as an objective reality so if we really believe that god is beautiful and that he's real Mm -hmm. then we have to take our learning about beauty seriously because if we don't appropriately appreciate or properly appreciate the beautiful then we can't properly appreciate our beautiful god Mm. and so like in a nutshell that but then there's this like what can we do about it
0: yeah Real quick, I have one thought on that real quick before you start. Please. uh, The same thing you said, but just in a sentence is the beauty in created things points to the beauty of the creator, right? And when we don't appreciate and don't discern and enjoy the beauty of created things, then we miss out on a lot of aspects, the majority of aspects and elements of the beauty of the creator. You already said that, but I want to say that in in those words too.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, that's great. Different ways of saying it hit different people. And so um, that's so important. Uh, So what can we do about it? Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the things that I've mentioned is that we need to develop a, mentioned out in public and other places, is we really need to develop a robust theology of beauty, which is Mm. almost being ignored. But in academia is seeing a resurgence a lot of it, especially in the area of spiritual formation. Hmm. And so beauty is helping to form our souls unto Christ-likeness. But develop a robust theology of beauty. For instance, and I, this is coming from talking with my colleague, Phil Talon, He says, the first question of the Westminster Confession is, what is the chief aim of man? Mm-hmm. And then the reply that is given is, man's chief end is to glorify God and, and, enjoy him forever. Hmm. Enjoyment is an aesthetic mode of appreciation. So I'm going to quote Dr. Talon here. He says, we focus almost entirely on Christian believing and Christian living, Mm -hmm. but not on Christian loving and loving rightly. So we've neglected the training of our loves and therefore the formation of christian taste.
0: It's so true.
1: <laughs> so, we need to develop a taste for the beautiful. Mm. We need to develop our aesthetic understanding because part of christianity is appreciating things appropriately. And if you want like a work that treated this, C.S. Lewis's The Abolition of Man in the very first part, he deals with this appropriate Mm -hmm. reaction to a waterfall and um it's just it's amazing how much we've forgotten of our great christian tradition especially in this area Mm
3: -hmm. so
1: i'm going to suggest a second thing one is robust theology develop your theology of beauty where is it coming from in the bible what does it mean and then instead of in the church overbalancing the focus on the negative and the bad Consistently pointing out what's wrong, especially in culture, Mm -hmm. church teaching should be focusing on what is good. Mm. So, answering questions of what can Christians enjoy and why should they be doing so? For instance, what aspects of culture can we partake in or should we be partaking in because these aspects are not inherently evil? Mm. How do these aspects of our culture help us to understand the nature of God? Yeah. How do these different activities affect our view of God's beauty and therefore our fuller understanding mm. of the universe in which we live and our place in it? So uh, what can Christians enjoy? Also, we need to teach the need for aesthetic enjoyment as a part of our maturing in our enjoyment of God. And if I were to tell you one thing that I found lacking in the church, like if we're going to sum up stuff, yeah. it would be that I was never taught how to enjoy God.
0: Yeah. In so many, I'd say in every church, they have at least a few examples of this. We can take these certain restrictions and put them in place as, oh, you don't do this. You don't experience this. You don't appreciate this in devotion to God. But And many of those are, are, sure, they're unbiblical or whatever, but there's a lot of things there that are like, well, I'm sure God would love you to appreciate that. Because that is a window right to him. And he put that there. He made that for you to enjoy, to show you, see him. And there's a lot of things we miss out on because there's these things that we've taken a Bible verse and gone five steps more and gone, okay, so that's not okay. But God yeah. goes, no, I put that there, man. That's, that's a great thing to do. See me through that. Enjoy me through enjoying that.
1: Yes. That, that maturing mm-hmm. in the enjoyment of God. Because when we're youthful, we have youthful enjoyment. For and, but we're but <laughs>
3: for everything, yeah. but
1: we're supposed to grow,
3: mm-hmm. right?
1: That's and, and as we mature in our enjoyments, that should show our maturity in how we enjoy our creator, mm-hmm. the things that we love, the things we desire, what we seek out, where we spend our time. And um yeah, it's just not been well yeah. handled over the years in the church. And I think that may go back to not having a theology of beauty in part. Yeah. So what I think has happened is because of the way we've presented God over the years, we've actually unfortunately presented him as judgmental. So we've, we've got this view of God's judgment, devoid Mm -hmm. of his perfect goodness and beauty that cannot be separated from his judgment. Mm -hmm. And so that, that has given us like a a sequestered understanding. Uh, And I think you know when people say, "Well, this person told me I was going to hell," you know, because of this or that or whatever, and they don't have anything else that goes with that. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> you know that's sequestering the judgment aspect. God is judge, and that it is actually good and beautiful to not allow evil to reign. Yeah, uh, and violence and murder and all those sorts of things. That there has to be a judge on that, but it goes with the idea that that is good and beautiful mm-hmm. to value your creation to not let unfettered evil just go.
0: Yeah. And when it's looked like looked at that in that way, judgment can become very one-dimensional. Very, yeah. It takes all the color out of it and also creates a very fear-based perspective and approach to it. Absolutely. And that's, that bleeds right into your relationship with God and it's all it becomes fear. And once again, condemnation, which is nowhere to be found because of Jesus. There's no condemnation in Christ, but yet it seeps in through these cracks, one of which being this beauty aspect. It leaves a gaping hole that condemnation comes through in. Yeah. All right, Mary Jo, I have one final question for you. The question I ask every guest on this podcast, and that is this. This podcast and my book are all about our crumpled papers, which are the ideas or beliefs that we may have at one time believed with full certainty, but at some point realized we needed to reevaluate our perspective on. So my question to you is, what is one or a few of the biggest or most important crumpled papers of your own that you've had to unlearn or get a new understanding of?
1: Yeah, I was sitting looking at this and I was like, oh, I don't want to answer this one. Because <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, I can give you all these apologetic things like, oh, my, you know, studying the problem of evil. Now I understand why people are so awful. Mm-hmm. Um, and it helps me. It helps me understand the yeah. need for God and all that. But I was like, well, what's really like, my book is really centered on church hurt. And mm-hmm. some uh, spiritual abuses. yeah and so I thought, oh, I'm gonna say things that I don't want to say, so you get the things that I haven't said to anybody else. <laughs> yes <laughs> all right. so I will start with a very charitable version of yeah. the first one, which is that one of my crumpled papers is figuring out that people in the church are just regular human beings and they actually have all the same human problems as everybody else.
0: huge mm-hmm.
1: okay That's the nice way of saying it. Mm-hmm how I experienced this. Yeah, what had to become, you know, I had to go back and reevaluate was that local church leaders truly cared about me beyond what I could do for them.
3: Hmm.
1: Now, let me caveat that because that sounds very condemning. Sure. I think they think they care. Yeah, or that they know that they're supposed to care Mm
3: -hmm. about
1: me. But that truly doing so has actually been a rare experience for me personally. And I think there are reasons for this phenomenon with the way we're approaching church as a numbers game,
2: because
1: mm-hmm. humans can only give so much personalized attention or care yeah. to so many people. And it's around, like when I've looked at the sociological studies, it's around 150. It's hmm. not 500 to 30,000 people in a congregation.
3: Yeah. Right? yeah so right. the way,
1: way we're approaching church is problematic for that view that has now been destroyed in my own life. And, yeah. and kind of complicating this is that I have encountered leaders who do care for me personally. Yeah. So it's not a blanket statement for everybody in leadership. Absolutely. But for some reason, mm-hmm. this has been a problem for me in the local church. Mm. And yet my hope remains evergreen because I I'm ever hopeful. I'm an idealist. Yeah. that's somewhere out there people who call themselves Christian leaders are going to truly take on the burden of caring even for the intellectual academic philosophical ivory tower types right like me because we're human too and we have our flaws and we need cared and love for it, and we need empathy even yeah. if we can do the math of world physicists or right. you know tango on the problem of evil with great thinkers across you know whatever we do we still are human and need that care and love of a pastor who mm-hmm. has said I'm a pastor who cares for people. Right. That's one.
0: The care of pastors, not on what people can offer them. Speaking of a utilitarian view of beauty, that bleeds right into a utilitarian view of people, of members. It's, oh, these people, yeah, I'm going to give them God. I'll, I'll show them God. I'll teach them about God. So the numbers can grow. In some cases, the money can grow. The power can grow. The control, you know, I'm going off a lot of different things here, which are not all or none. there's, bits and pieces in different congregations but it's it all is in these cases a utilitarian view of the people not as the beauty of the individual and oh they're coming to my congregation to see and experience god through me and through others around them and that's it how can we foster that yeah and things get in the way but utilitarian is that can cover so many different aspects of life but church in these contexts
1: yeah. I think you really hit it there is. Yeah. And that's so while I don't, I don't want to be condemning. It's just been my experience yeah. is that I'm valued more for what I can do than for who I am.
0: Yeah. And that's resonant, I think, with a lot of people.
1: Yeah. And, and that hurts because this mm. is my, that we call ourselves the family of God and tell ourselves to bring our hurts to one another. Well, yeah, you got to create that environment. And I think for pastors to think that way, they actually have to be trained to think mm. that way about people. So that's one. Yeah. You want another one? I do. <laughs> okay. This one, this one's another tough one for me to say, because I haven't said it out loud.
0: Oh, I've thought it. Okay.
1: We've, my husband and I have been discussing this for so many years, mm. which is that, and there's so many caveats on this. So here we go. Yeah, sure. Nuance people. No Nuance. polarization. <laughs> Nuance. <laughs> The American evangelical institutionalized church Mm -hmm. in the current way it's Mm -hmm. structured with its current cultural expectations is mainly focused on the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I do not think that's the case. Mm. I think there may have been a time when that was true. And I think it's still a focus, Mm -hmm. but I don't think it's the focus of the church that calls itself evangelical. Mm. So this is a problem because that's our moniker. Yeah. (laughs) That's a moniker. And I've seen the church, and I said this earlier, uh, way earlier in the podcast, which is I've seen the church very much more focused on the business of church Yeah, and the business of maintaining the church as a social club Mm -hmm. rather than a deep, passionate desire to spread the good news. And I can give an example that's just one, it's one anecdotal example. You'd have to do a full study, but here's an example Years ago, I was in a big Sunday school class, and at the start, before like broke off into all our individual groups, um, they'd always ask like, "What can we pray about?" And I was really going out at that time, talking to people about God and using yeah. my apologetics. So I was constantly bringing in, Oh, I talked to this person, and would you pray for them because they, you know they need to know Jesus. Yeah. And it was becoming clear to me that that was being viewed as an annoyance <laughs> and as a disruption. <laughs> yeah which was kind of a painful moment sure, because I had suspicions about this and about this focus of the church not really being on that. Mm. But now I got to have an observation of it and, and it hurt. So yeah. I actually shut down sharing prayers for people who didn't believe in God because of the social expectations within the church. Mm. So my crumpled paper was that, hey, the church's focus is we're going to share Jesus with people, especially yeah. in the evangelical church tradition. So that's our focus. Let's go out and do this. Let's really get excited about what the good news, the beauty, the the truth, this goodness that we have. That, and
0: offer this to people. Offer this yeah. to them and give it to them. Yeah. yeah.
1: Not not a cheesy, you know, evangelical. Here's a little card that tells you. Right. It's really, really like. Yeah. Being excited, being naturally Christian wherever you go and just Mm -hmm. it kind of pouring out of you um and that was not what I saw and I didn't see it being intentionally developed and that was weird because our church's motto included evangelizing as one of its like big high ideals it was like yeah edifying evangelizing and you know like it had a little that was one of the things we talked about all the time so Hmm. I'm concerned about that one my crumpled paper is that maybe we're not so focused
0: that's a great one
1: I have one more and I can do it
0: quickly. Don't do it. Go ahead. And this
1: is my heart for younger families that get involved with ministry. I went into ministry thinking all those ideals about Christians. They're going to care for you. They're going to love you. So here's the crumpled paper. If you and your family devote your lives to ministry, the local church as an employer Mm -hmm. will in some way honor and respect that commitment and take care of their ministry families.
0: That's a really good one. That's really interesting.
1: Because that has not been my experience. Mm. There may be other people out there going, well, that's not true. We totally had great churches. Sure. I've been in many. Yeah, (laughs) And it's been almost 30 years. And as an employer, no, that's not my experience. We've been taken advantage of, Mm. dealt with illegally. Mm -hmm. Paid below poverty level when we had a young child and had wealthy members in a church. Mm -hmm. We've been maligned haphazardly without caution due to a single powerful voice in a congregation. Now, I will say, look, there have been many local church members that have really supported us individually and loved on us and continue to do so, which we love. But I'm talking about the church as the employer employee relationship. And so I'm probably just supposed to give a crumpled paper, but I would love to give a caution and advice. Yes. So to these future families getting involved with ministry, um, please be hopeful and idealistic. I love that. Yes. But bring in a healthy understanding of the fallenness of humankind into Mm. any ministry position. And that starts with your salary and contract and benefits. Yeah. You have to take care of your family churches should do better for their ministry families and not have them living on welfare and not have them thrust into bankruptcy or keep them at such low pay that they can't afford a home, but they do this. Uh, I've seen it. I've experienced it personally and I've seen it way too many times. So please make sure that you do not feel bad about caring for your primary family that is part of ministry, is establishing work-life boundaries and taking care of yourselves. So Uh there's this whole romanticized view of ministry that you're supposed to be a martyr and just you live in an American context with an American situation. Please take care of your family.
0: That's so important. I was going to say kind of what you said the last part there for an institution and a context founded on so many principles of Giving and serving for God, of yourself, whatever, it's ripe for being taken advantage of and it often is especially you know for, from anywhere from volunteers to paid staff to anyone in that context that has is giving their time but contractually for money, right And yeah. it can be really especially for young I mean for, I mean for a lot of people, but since I'm young I've seen it in younger people too, but it is so often taken advantage of Unrightfully. It's never a good thing to take advantage of, but, but but it's so, I'm so glad you said that. It's so true. Yeah.
1: And I, you would expect that as a professor of apologetics, I would have some, (laughs) like something on doubt or whatever. But I think from my experience of talking to people who have left the faith. Uh, yeah. A lot of it comes back to church hurt and unethical dealings in the church and yeah. church members that were given too much power and control and voice yep. when they should have been held accountable for their antithetical views to um, you know, people, uh, antithetical to Christianity is what it yeah. is, but their views were antithetical to biblical practices. And yet they were still, just because they were wealthy or a longtime member
3: yeah. or
1: very good at expressing themselves or something, they were given the past over a ministry family who barely makes a living for the most part can barely get by and yeah. then you're going to tr- you're going to treat them poorly that's not biblical let's just put it that way yeah so you know if churches don't hire more pastors than you can support yeah ethically ethically support
0: yeah that's I mean, it's, i'm so glad you brought that up because that hasn't been talked about much on this podcast yet so i'm glad that was such an important aspect of the whole thing Anything else you want to say before I close out on anything else of the podcast?
1: Um, you know, you can, I guess, where to find me. You can find me at yes. uh, MaryjoSharp.com is my website. And if you go to my resources, there's a lot of lectures in there. And you can see where I've participated in uh, debates and, you know, my favorite lectures, my favorite articles. Also, you can find my resources under my mm-hmm. books or if you want to invite me out to an event. Yeah, Uh, There's a place to do that as well. And I can come talk on, typically I talk on apologetics um, because my husband is a, um, he's involved, he's a doctorate of spiritual formation. Mm. We're currently kind of coming into this area of the intersection of apologetics and spiritual formation. Like if you believe God is real and how does that affect everyday life uh, and long-term goals. So anyway, you can find me there, MaryJessSharp.com.
0: Great. And I will link that down below. I'll also link, uh, put a link to the book as well, Why I Still Believe. Mary Jo, thank you so much for being on. I'm so glad, I got to, to, I'm so glad the connection was made at the hospital to bring you on and talk about this. <laughs> I loved your book. I love the conversation. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: That's it, guys. I will see you next week. Until then, peace out. Thanks for hanging with us on this episode of the Crumpled Papers podcast. The episode may be over, but the conversation's just getting started. If you have any questions or comments, or just want to say hi, send us an email at crumpledpaperspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. And make sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date with all things Crumpled Papers. All links are in the description. This is Austin, and I'll see you next time on the Crumpled Papers Podcast.